Alright, if you will take your Bibles please and open them this morning, not to the book of Hebrews, but to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, and if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve, and after that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that He was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Then last of all He was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so... You believed. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us clarity as we consider this simple, powerful declaration of the truth of the gospel. God, remind us that in the midst of all of our doing, we are a people of one truth. Jesus Christ is the only hope. Remind us, Lord, the glory, the beauty, the majesty of the gospel. Let it impact us anew. Let it turn our hearts to you. Let it warm us. Let it empower us. And let it go forth from this place with power to transform this community, this state, this nation, and this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many times, there is a great deal of confusion or wordplay or or wrangling about what is the gospel? How do you convey the gospel to somebody so that it is the truth and so that it is effective? Do you drag out big sob stories? Do you tell horrible details about your life of sin and what you've been delivered from? Do you convey the gospel with man-centered ideas so that you guilt them into making some sort of a response? Do you try to pressure? What is it that is the gospel? Is Is it something that man can evoke? 
Is it something that is just this thing that's supposed to make us feel better? Paul says plainly, the gospel in its rawest, barest, most boiled down point can be found right here in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and raised. That's the heart of the gospel. Now, what we have to do is understand what is it that is being conveyed to us in that very simple statement. And I want to begin by just thinking it through with you. I want to begin with what it means that Jesus died, about what it means that Jesus was buried, and about what it means that Jesus was raised, and about why it's important that we stand on the fact that this is truth. Because if we sacrifice any of this, we lose the gospel. These things are absolutely unequivocable. And you cannot compromise on one minute point of the truth that Jesus Christ died for sinners, was buried, and was raised by the power of God. So let's think together about this. What does it mean that Jesus died? Well, first of all, Jesus dying for sin is something that he did not for his own sake, but because a problem had entered into the world. And what was the problem? Sin, right? Our sin. Specifically, it was the fact that all the way back in the garden, God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from, you will die. They didn't believe God. They rebelled against His command. They ate of the tree. We can set aside all the other things that are wrapped up in that truth and we can understand that death entered into creation as a consequence for the sin of rebelling against God's clear commandment. And because of that, death was pronounced not only upon Adam and Eve as individuals, but upon all of their descent. That means that every single person born of man and woman was wrapped in the curse of death and would die for their sin. Physically, life now has a duration. Physically, life now has a set ending. And every single one of us, unless the Lord tarries, will taste death. Okay? Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, was exempt from that requirement. He was without sin, and he was without any error in him whatsoever. His death was not for his own. His death was not for his own sin. It was not for his own need. It was for something else. It was for the fact that we ourselves were under the punishment. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. So for every single one of us, not only do we have the reality of a physical death entering in, but now we have the complexity being added to it of the fact that God promises that there is more at stake than just a physical death. Everybody dies physically. Not everybody has to die spiritually. Although you are born spiritually dead, you need not remain that way. 
When God calls you to life, makes you His own, He imparts to you life that is ours by right of what Jesus has done. By the death of Jesus, life is given to us. In the midst of this, what we have to understand is that if the wages of sin is death, then the reality is that death itself is a payment, right? Your wage is what you earn by what you do. When you sin, you earn death. When you sin, you live in such a way that you are deserving death. And there is no way in the world that death can be removed from play apart from the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We read this morning in Leviticus, and it was talking about the blood sacrifices and about the reasons why things were done the way that they were done. And remember that for um, the sons of Aaron, their sin of offering profane fire before the Lord resulted in their immediate death. Okay? It's a very easy connection to see. They did this and this happened. Our problem is that often, because death doesn't necessarily come immediately on the heels of our sin and bad decisions, we tend to disconnect them. We tend to think, well, death is a natural process. We tend to think that death is is just this reality and that it's just there and there's no real reason for it. We tend to divorce in our minds the truth that death is a consequence and that our continued sin simply requires more death unless somebody dies to pay for us. The death of Jesus was needed for sin. And the death of Jesus, despite what you may hear from some, was real, literal, And terrible. Okay? Jesus Christ came to earth, lived as a man, and died for sin that was not his own. He died a physical death that is probably unsurpassed by any form of execution man has ever invented. Typically, crucifixion would take three to four days for somebody to die. Now, the scripture tells us that Jesus died in the same day that he was crucified. And they accomplished, it was accomplished in Jesus' case by him giving up his spirit. But in other cases, the other thieves that were, the thieves that were on the cross with him, the other men that were crucified, it was accomplished by breaking their legs. The reason for this is that crucifixion is a death by suffocation. A man is suspended with his arms stretched out and the pressure pulls up on the diaphragm. And as he exhales, he can no longer inhale. He has to stand up on the nail driven through his feet. And in doing that, his body is weakened and weakened and weakened. It's not a fast way to die. It's a terrible way to die. You couple it with the scourging that Jesus received, which often itself was fatal. And you have something which occurred to him, which was beyond our ability to understand, no matter how graphic the movie displays it. But that wasn't the worst of it. You see, the death of Jesus was more than just a physical death. The death of Jesus was a punishment given by God for the sin of his people. And what Jesus endured on the cross was the unmitigated, unfiltered, undiminished wrath of God. 
for the sin of his people. For your sin and my sin, Jesus suffered the death of the cross. Part of our problem in putting these things together in our mind in a way that can be beneficial to us is that we have no real scope or context for understanding what the wrath of God really looks like. But consider it like this. The scripture tells us that the wrath of God is the eternal punishment of the wicked in hell. The scripture tells us that forever and forever, their fire is not put out. It's not quenched. Their worm does not die. The the tortures that they will endure for all of eternity never cease. It is the fire of hell is the wrath of God. And if we don't comprehend that hell is not a place where people are away from God, but hell is a place where people are in the presence of God in wrath for all of eternity, then we do not have the ability to comprehend what Jesus endured on the cross. Because to borrow the phrase Paul Washer uses, Jesus drank your portion of hell. He consumed that portion of God's wrath which was reserved for your sin. Every single thing you have ever done that deserves the punishment of God was punished in Jesus Christ. It's done. It's settled. It's finished. Therein lies the real horror of the cross. Therein lies the real difficulty and the real pain. Because what Jesus was doing was atoning for the sin of his people. Very particularly and very specifically. That thing you did yesterday, it was on Jesus when he was on the cross. That thing you're going to do tomorrow, it was on Jesus when he was on the cross. There is a very specific connection between the death of Jesus and the sin of his people. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. Jesus speaking says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. And I am known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. Now what is Jesus saying here? He's saying specifically and particularly, I know the people for whom I am dying. I am dying for my sheep. I am dying for my children. And it's about the fact that they belong to me. He makes the connection that a hireling comes in and has no concern for his sheep. He has no concern for the sheep of the master. He has no concern for the ones that he's entrusted to care for because they're not his. 
But he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. Why? Because they're mine. I lay, them, I lay down my life because my sheep are mine. They belong to me. So there is a particular connection to the persons for whom he died, but it goes further than that. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 3. Isaiah writes, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. And he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. The death of Jesus was a specific substitutionary death. It was for the sins of God's people. And very specifically, Isaiah says, he was punished for our transgressions, for our iniquities. So that means that the list of our transgressions, the specifics of our iniquities, were placed upon him and they were punished in his death. They were punished so fully and so completely that they are removed from any opportunity of us being charged with them for punishment because they have been settled. We cannot be punished for our sin if we are found in Christ. Now, this does not remove the natural and logical consequences of our stupid actions. It does not remove the natural and logical consequences of us doing things that that involve problems that are arising in this life because we do something. It doesn't mean you can go out and rob a bank and expect not to be caught and go to jail, whether you identify as a bank robber today or not. It, it, It makes no difference what you do There are consequences for your actions. But as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will not be punished by God for your sin because He punished it in the death of Jesus. It's done. And in punishing your sin in the death of Jesus, He removed that consequence from you. This is what the death of Jesus means to us. It was a voluntary substitution. Did you notice what he said in John? Look back with me at John. Actually, hang on before you do. Two more verses in Isaiah, right here where we are. Reading on, verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. So who killed Jesus? God did. Right? 
Don't lose sight of that. God did this. God killed him. He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his day. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. So, who voluntarily submitted? Jesus. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So this voluntary submission, God voluntarily surrendering his son to die for his rebellious people, Jesus voluntarily submitting to the death, even the death of a cross for the sake of the joy that was set before him. In everything that goes on, understand that nobody compelled God to do anything. And nobody compelled Jesus to do anything. This was the act of his love for his people. The people that he had chosen before the foundation of the world to make his own and to call his own. He fully and completely paid for their sin. Now this is important for us to understand in this context because one of the things that is frequently misunderstood by many is the idea of universal atonement. The idea that that Jesus died for every single person's sin on the planet who ever has lived, ever will live, and that all of those sins are paid for. What that means, if you think that through, is that Jesus died for people who are in hell. That sin has been paid for in the death of Jesus, but then God unjustly went ahead and condemned them to hell, and their sins are punished twice. What the scripture teaches is that Jesus died for the sins of his people, the people that he chose, which means their sins are actually paid for. It leaves nothing for us to do to earn our salvation, to to receive our salvation, to, to do any portion of it. And I'm not sure about you, but that gives me great comfort because if God said to me, okay, Eugene, I'm going to do 99.999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
And that's how it works with all of us. Because the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks him. No one does what's right. No one does what's good. That no one, dear children, means you. It means me. It means those people that you're praying for. The ones that you love who don't know God. Which means, if you make no other connection, understand this. Their only hope is that God make them alive. So praying for them is exactly the right thing to do. Amen. Okay? Communicate the gospel as well. But if you find that you can't, if you have no opportunity, if you try and they shut you down, whatever's going on, you can still pray. Because nobody receives the gospel until God changes their heart. This is His work. This is His glory. This is His strength. This is His salvation. See, God was willing, and we were not. Jesus was willing. He laid down His life. Look at John chapter 10. We stopped just right short of this verse, and we stopped there on purpose. John chapter 10 And we'll back up one verse to verse 17, which we read. But I want to put it in the context of the verse that comes after. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. You want to put a little finer point on that? Flip with me to Matthew chapter 26. On the night that Jesus was arrested, so that all Scripture would be fulfilled, He told His disciples that they ought to bring a couple of swords with them because He was to be numbered among transgressors. So, here's how they transgressed with those swords that they were told to bring. Matthew 26, starting at verse 52. Jesus, I'm sorry, verse 51. Suddenly, one of those who were there with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot even now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could Scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Right? What's Jesus saying? Saying, look, if I didn't want to be arrested, there ain't enough manpower in all the world to arrest me. One angel could have sufficed. But instead, 12 legions. 72,000, I think, is the actual number there. I think Jesus had the option to not go to the cross if he chose to not go to the cross. But instead, what the scripture tells us is that he instructed his disciples, put your sword away. That's not how this is supposed to happen. 
He'd already told them, I'm going to lay down my life. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. He later tells Pilate, in the course of his conversation with Pontius Pilate, you would have no power over me if it was not given to you. Right? So the entire drama of everything that was going on was the will and purpose of God to save a people He has chosen for Himself. Yes, Jesus was the victim of an unjust trial, but He was no victim. He was the one in charge. By His will and His purpose, according to the eternal plan of God, He was fulfilling what was agreed in the divine covenant before the world was established. He was obeying what He and the Father had agreed must happen. Because what had to happen was vicarious imputation of sin and guilt of ours to Christ and vicarious imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us by the vicarious imputation of His death being applied to us. Look with me at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. Paul writes this. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. That's the righteousness that was imputed to Abraham for his faith is the context of what Paul's talking about. But also for us. It, speaking of that righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So again, Paul puts the point on it. Why was Jesus delivered to death? Because of the sin and the guilt and the rebellion of His people. For our offenses. This is why he died. And he died because our offenses were placed on him. Skip down now to Matthew or to Romans chapter 5 and start reading at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. 
For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness, sorry, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What did Paul just tell us? What Paul told us is that in Adam... His sin was imputed to his descent. We are counted as guilty of Adam's sin. This is the original sin that is passed on to each of us. Now, we contribute our own sin to that original sin. So even if it was only original sin, if we could take that out of the mix, which we can't, we're still guilty. We all still sin. We all still fail. We all still have actual, particular, intentional, deliberate sin against the glory and grace of God. But by imputing the sin of Adam to his descent, God opened the door for the imputation of the righteousness of Christ through his death. God said, I'm going to count in Adam as if you had done it. And some people cry out, not fair, not fair. But what Paul tells us in Romans 5.19 is that in the same manner as sin entered the world through the one man, so also in the same manner life can enter through the other man. There is a direct comparison between the imputation of Adam's sin and the imputation of the death of Jesus Christ. Look, it is incredibly important that you understand this truth. Because there are a lot of people that are going to push back and challenge you about why it's important that we think Jesus died for sin. Okay? You will get a lot of pushback from some people about believing that the death of one man could affect everybody. You will get a lot of pushback about the fact that we believe that Jesus actually died for us. Some people will happily admit that Jesus was a good man who did good things and was killed by the bad Roman government and that we ought to try to live like him because he was a nice guy. But let me tell you very plainly, no good man stands up and declares himself to be God. And Jesus did. No good man tells his followers, if you believe in me, I will make sure that you have eternal life. If he's just a man and not something more, there is nothing more wicked. Think David Koresh and Branch Davidian. Think Jim Jones in Guyana. They were not good men, but people believed them and believed that they had power that they did not possess. But Jesus Christ was more than a good man. He was God made flesh. And He had the power to do what He promised. 
So let us not be so foolish as to squander the glory and the strength and the power of the death of Jesus for sin by making it something incidental to the story. It is the first leg of the gospel. The death of Jesus. Paul says, I delivered unto you the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. He died for our sin. Okay? It is the very first component that we have to hang on to. And then he says, he was buried. Now this is a part of it that we don't tend to think a lot about. People die, they're buried. Right? It happens. We, we tend to be fairly calm about it, whether, whether they're cremated or whether they're interred in a tomb or a mausoleum or put in the ground or whatever. We, we tend to just recognize that death and burial go hand in hand. So why would Paul make a specific point of telling us that Jesus died and was buried? Well, first of all, when you bury somebody there is a, an element of it in which you're saying, this is finished. Right? What were the last words that Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. Right? There is a, there is a completion, a finality to the burial. There is, there is an end to it. There is some closure in that, in that moment. Because we recognize that once they're there, they're not coming back. But Jesus was buried. And He did. And in His return, in His resurrection, we have hope for those that we ourselves have buried. In His resurrection, the Scripture tells us that our burials are just an entrusting to God for those days that will still come. Right? See, Jesus was buried because his work as the man of God here in his earthly ministry was over. And there was some finality to it. There was some closure to it. It was was as if he was put away. Right? Mentally, the disciples recognized that their understanding of what Jesus came to do was clearly wrong. Why do you think they all fled? Because in that moment, they were still terrified that the Romans would come for them next. In that moment, they were still afraid for their own lives, and they had no hope beyond this life. And beloved, we need to recognize the fact that at some point in our encounter with the gospel, we have to reach a place where we come to a closure with our old life. You don't get to stand with one foot in the old man and one foot in the new man and say, I'm okay right here. Now the reality is, you're never going to completely have victory over the old man as long as you have life. Okay? But your focus and your intention and your drive and your purpose must not be to hold on to the old sins and the old self while still clinging to Christ. 
God is not in the insurance business. He does not sell hell insurance. He doesn't give you a policy on the name of Jesus which says, okay, I've written your name, I've given you the insurance, and in doing that, I now have given you free lease to live your life however you want. What God does is saves those who are His own and gives them a a sealed closure on the old man. The Scripture tells us that we're supposed to put him to death every day. We're supposed to crucify the old man with his old ways and his old sins and his old thoughts every single day. Scripture tells us that we are not supposed to be conformed to the likeness of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Scripture tells us that there should be a clear demarcation from who we were to who we are. Right In, in men's Bible study, we're, we're studying the book of James, and we got yesterday to the verse where it says, Clear and undefiled religion is this, to visit widows and orphans in their need, and to keep oneself unstained by the world, unspotted by the world, unblemished by the world. So what the Scripture tells us is that we are supposed to be very particularly, distinctly different from what we were. And beloved, nothing gives that picture better than burial. The old man is dead. And he is to be buried. He is to be put away. He is not to be kept, fed a little bit here and there so that he might retain some strength. He is to be done away with in our minds. Because Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners and he was buried. But there's also a sense in which his burial sets up the wonder of his resurrection. Right? Think this through with me. Jesus is on the cross. He says, it's finished. He dies. The Romans look at him and say, huh, this one's already dead. We don't have to break his legs. Let's make sure. They stab him with a spear. Blood and water issue forth. Yep, he's dead. Then suddenly he goes, ah, I'm alive. What are people going to say? What are they going to believe? Was he resurrected? Or did the Roman just miss his thrust? Did he die? Did he not die? Now, don't lose sight of the fact that you're going to hear this ridiculous argument even though he was buried. There are some people who will believe and persist in believing that Jesus was taken down off of the Roman cross by professional executioners, placed in a tomb, still alive. Barely. And the coolness of the tomb revived him. And he stumbled forth to be seen by a few people and then went off to die in the woods like a wounded animal later. Yeah, that's what happened. Jesus was taken down off the cross. He was wrapped. He wasn't fully embalmed because they didn't have time before the Sabbath. That's what the women were coming to do on Sunday morning, was to finish putting the spices and things that would hasten his decomposition in the tomb. They were completely 100% sure that Jesus was dead. 
I remind you, these are professional executioners. Roman soldiers knew death. They dealt it well. They dealt it a lot. And they were not confused about when somebody was dead or when somebody was faking. Jesus was dead. And Jesus was buried. And in the burial of Christ, in the sealing of the tomb, and the guard placed on the tomb, we have the testimony of not only the Scripture, but through the Scripture, we have the testimony of an unbelieving world that Jesus was really dead. What did the Pharisees go to the Roman authorities with and ask that a guard would be placed? I find this one of the great ironies of Scripture, right? The disciples didn't remember what Jesus said. From one day to the next, they were constantly forgetting. But the Pharisees remembered. He told his disciples that he would be raised up again in three days, so give us leave to post a guard on the tomb, lest his disciples come and steal the body, and in the end, his final impact will be worse and harder to control than his first problem. That was the Pharisees' logic about why a guard was posted. They were told by the Roman authorities, post the guard, do what you have to do. I'm tired of this whole conversation. So they posted the guard. And then, Sunday morning happened. What the scripture tells us is that the stone was rolled away, that an angel appeared that the guard fell down as dead men, which is a very common impact when people see real angels. And all of it was not to let Jesus out. It was to let us in, to see that something had happened. Because Jesus had been buried. Okay? See, that entire dynamic alters if we leave out the middle part that we so frequently just pass over. That entire dynamic is changed if we just say, well, you know, Jesus died and then he was raised. But he was dead. He was in the ground for three days. And when he was raised, it was shocking enough that the disciples responded to the women who came and reported that Jesus was gone with disbelief. And the first thought in all of their minds was that somebody had stolen the body. It's the most amazing thing to consider that all of the time that Jesus had spoken to them and all of the times that he had told them exactly what was going to happen, it left their minds completely. So much so that the hope of his resurrection was dead to them. Now I want to think with you about that just a little bit because one of the most important things about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the establishment of hope. Here's the truth. We all, in one capacity or another, Face mortality every day. We love people who have died or are dying. We know people who have died or are dying. 
We are faced with death on our televisions. The world is in chaos. Things are upside down. We look every single day at spiritual death and people acting as if they are dead mentally and spiritually because they are. Death is around us all the time. But when we deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it breaks the finality of death and gives us hope in the midst of our despair. Look, death does not have to be for somebody who knows Christ. Something that destroys them emotionally and physically and spiritually. Yes, you will grieve. And it's right that you grieve. There are are people in this room right now who are still grieving. Okay? And it is right that you should. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to grieve in hope. And we're called to grieve in hope because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And hope has been established by His resurrection. Look at me at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and starting at verse 18, Paul says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, what's Paul saying? He's saying, first of all, that the fall itself was geared towards the hope of something better. And what was the hope of something better? A restored, renewed creation made right by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For we know Creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. But not only that, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. What hope is, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are His called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. Beloved, understand this. We read those last three verses often, but they are perfectly aligned in the context of hope. That Christ is the firstborn among many creatures. And who are those many creatures? We who are the called. We who are chosen by God to be conformed to the likeness of Christ and will one day participate and partake in the glory of His resurrection so that we might be like Him. 
Beloved, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the crowning point of all things. It is the proof that God has accepted our sacrifice. Romans 4.24 says that He was raised because of our justification. It is the final word of God that the death of Jesus was indeed accepted on our behalf. And it is the testimony of our adoption as the firstfruits. And in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ... Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 that in Jesus, every single promise of God is yes and amen to the glory of the Father. Beloved, hear me. The heart of the gospel is contained right here. The death of Jesus for the sin of His people. His burial. His resurrection. And then Paul says this. He was raised and he was seen by Cephas and the twelve. He was seen by others. And, And then he says this most remarkable statement that so often we don't pay any attention to. He says he was seen by over 500 at once, many of whom still remain today. Now what's he telling us? He's telling us that we have the verification of the truth of His resurrection by the account of eyewitnesses. Okay? How many eyewitnesses does it take to establish something in a court of law? Two. Right? How many eyewitnesses does it take to establish reasonable doubt? One. How many eyewitnesses did Paul just testify? You can go talk to them. You know who they are. Five hundred. At once. Not to mention himself, not to mention Peter, not to mention the rest of the twelve, not to mention the fact that everywhere Jesus went after his resurrection, he was not making it a secret. Beloved, understand this. Your most profoundly important tool in the proclamation of the gospel is your fervent belief that it's truth. Okay? And you need to settle this in your heart with all of its implications. And you need to settle it in such a way that when somebody pushes back by their ignorance or spiritual darkness, you're not disconcerted and undone by their confusion. Look, sometimes you're going to be mocked for telling somebody, look, I know this is true. I know this is true because I've experienced what it is, the power of Christ, I know the truth of what I'm telling you. And they'll mock us for saying things like that. But out of the other side of their mouth, they demand that we accept their experiences as true because they tell us they're true. Right? And they're unashamed about that. They're unapologetic about that. Yes, you must believe me if I tell you my truth. It's my truth. And you must believe me. Okay. Let me tell you about truth. Well, I don't have to believe you. Well, which side of the stick do you want to beat me with? Both. Thank you very much. That's typically the answer. But... The truth is, they're unapologetic about demanding that we accept their testimony. 
So stop running and hiding when they push back and say, I don't have to believe you. Fine, they don't have to believe you. But you should believe you. Amen? You should believe that what you're telling them is truth. And you should live like what you're telling them is truth. It should impact your life. Because in the end, we have the testimony of eyewitnesses. We have the testimony of our own knowledge of God through the saving grace of Jesus Christ, which transformed us and made us into something new. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks and we're going to spend time on Good Friday and and Easter sunrise service thinking through a little deeper the implications of all of this truth. Okay? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the entire truth of Scripture. You can't compromise this and have any of it be true. It's important that the people of God know the truth about what it means that Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners, was buried, and was raised. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace to understand, and I pray, God, that you would allow the the, the, the poor, frail attempt at such magnificent truth to be taken in by your people. God, I pray that you would show us your heart Transform us by your grace. Give us knowledge and wisdom and power beyond anything that we can understand. And Father, we pray that the truth of the gospel would first impact us, and then through us, impact the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.